Welcome to SciShow Tangents, the lightly competitive science knowledge showcase. I'm your host, Hank Green, and joining this week, as always, is science expert, Sari Riley. Hello. And our resident everyman, Sam Schultz. Hi, Hank. But we also have a special guest this week. It's a science communicator who has spent 10 years making educational videos for several channels, including Soul Pancake, Seeker, and Una Dose of Trace. He's currently producing, writing, and hosting the science and supposedly comedy podcast. That's absurd. Please elaborate with his fellow nerd and good buddy, Trace Dominguez. And not that it's relevant, but lists come in threes. He once won tickets to the Grammys in a dance-off. It's Julian Huguet! Wow. Hi. Hi. You can win tickets to the Grammys? If is, that's the prize in a dance-off that I happen to be at. Was there like a music industry person uh, involved in the dance-off? It was an L.A. radio station that was having like a party pre-Grammys. Okay. Uh, uh-huh. Harry Styles was there. I did uh-huh. not meet him. Did you beat him in the dance contest? <laughs> I wish. I wish. Ah, uh, But I couldn't. We all know. But he, no. he may already be going to the Grammys. Yeah. <laughs> No, yeah, that would have been mean of him. Yeah, right? Harry Styles would never do something like win tickets to a Grammys that he's already <laughs> clearly invited to. Rip the tickets up right in front of your face. Yeah, it's like buying out all the tickets to his own concert in the front row. Like, nobody can see me. You know, Billy Joel does that. I love this. Billy Joel does not sell the front row tickets to his shows. And then he has his staff go and give them to people in the back because he got tired of scalpers selling them for too much money. And people in the front row, because they were all Richie Rich Pants, never had any fun. And that made it less fun for him. And so Billy Joel never sells the front two rows to his shows. And it makes me love him and want to listen Saints to River of, of Dreams right now. That's awesome. <laughs> ha- has he ever forfeited a dance-off for the good of a fan? Or is that un- unknown? Yeah, I think that's sort of how he spends his Tuesdays. <laughs> <laughs> Saturdays, he's the piano man. Tuesdays, he's the breakdance man. <laughs> <laughs> Which was how I won the tickets, by the way. Was who you were breakdancing? Yes. Oh, so this wasn't like a dance as like longer than everyone's. It was dancing no. better than everyone else. Yes. Wow. Yeah, it was a competition of skill. Are you a really good dancer? Comparatively to the other people at this event, yes. Okay. <laughs> he was wow. better than everyone else in the room. I think it was the surprise. I think it's because yeah, I look right. like you I do like people's taxes in my spare yeah. time for fun. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then, <laughs> and then I can bust one, maybe two moves. This wow. leads more, lends more credence to the idea that Hank Green is in fact a Julian Huguet impersonator. Because I'm also <laughs> get... a pretty good dancer, but obviously not as good as you. <laughs> My bio, I almost put the third thing is like, and often called the poor man's Hank Green, which is like 50% of the YouTube comments I get. Yeah. <laughs> but I didn't yeah. want to be presumptuous. You're also better at hockey than me. I really am well, a Julian impersonator. The, the, the floor is low there. The, the, but the only the, sport I've ever played, and you're better at it than me, because no I've seen kidding. you play hockey. Yeah, we wow. have to organize an actual hockey comp. I'm a goalie. Do hockey you competition out? and, and dance-off. And dance-off. Combination hockey competition dance-off. There's zero chance that I would score on you. You're alienating yeah. all the people who listen to this show, okay? <laughs> they don't dance and they don't play hockey. I guarantee you that. Special Tangents is brought to you by Rocket Money, a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. I said it before, and I'll say it again. It's a subscription-based world out there. Video games, art-making programs, food delivery services, these things, they all have dang subscription services to subscribe to. And I don't want to cast a 
aspersions, dispersions, yeah. what? aspersions, one of those. Aspersions. Yeah. But it does seem like part of the subscription uh, business model is to get you to subscribe to something and then hope that you lose track of everything you subscribe to and just keep forking out 10 bucks a month until the sun mm-hmm. burns out. And you know yeah. what? That's actually a pretty good idea on their part, but it's not such a good idea for your wallet. Your money is like a bean. <laughs> <laughs> You want to plant it in fertile soil. You don't want people carving off pieces of your bean all the time. Yeah, that yeah. bean's not going to grow if, there, if there's a constant drain on the on bean. The bean. Yeah. That <laughs> is where Rocket Money comes in. With Rocket Money, you can see all your subscriptions in one place. Decide what you do and don't want and cancel things with just a tap. Rocket Money will even try to get you a refund for the last couple of months of wasted money and beyond I mean, beans and beyond subscription canceling (laughs) rocket money helps you build budgets, track your spending and more. There's all kinds of ways to take care of those beans. So they grow into a nice big bean plant. It has over 5 million users and it helps save members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. What would you do with 720 beans? I buy more beans. (laughs) (laughs) Different kind of bean, I guess. A cheaper, more of a cheaper type of bean. You buy cheaper beans with your expensive beans. (laughs) Yeah, until I had an infinite amount of the cheapest bean you could possibly have. (laughs) Subscription (laughs) companies hate this one simple trick because you figured out their plot. And now you can use that money for beans instead. Stop wasting (laughs) money on things you don't use and start using money on things like beans. Cancel your (laughs) unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash tangents. That's rocketmoney.com slash tangents. Rocketmoney.com slash T-A-N-G-E-N-T-S. Every week here on SciShow Tangents, we get together to try to one-up and amaze and delight each other with science facts while also trying to stay on topic. Our panelists are playing for glory and for Hank Bucks, which I will award them as we play. At the end of the episode, one of them will be crowned the winner. Now, as always, we're going to introduce this week's topic with the traditional science poem this week from Julian. Oh, boy. Uh, This poem is titled An Ode to Telescopes, a completely original poem by Julian Huguet. Twinkle, twinkle, Mm. little star, how I wonder what you are. Why some wander in the firmament while all the rest are permanent, and how it is that each of you seem equally afar. Mm. As much as I squint and strain, points of light you all remain. With lenses ground for eyeglasses, the new use for the spyglasses to maximize your tiny size and minimize my pain. Who'd have thought it would disprove the claims of many men who have, working under an assumption, said the sky's implicit functions place Terra firmly in the center, and yet it moves. Tons of new techniques evolved, lenses' limits were resolved. Now spectra are divisible, and specters once invisible shift the size of star-filled skies, still riddles are unsolved. First stories remain untold, so I'll venture to the cold. I'll ride fires of discovery, roam and search the skies above me, pull out the pins and soak it in, the universe unfolds. I've gazed on Luna's lovely face, gained perspective on the human race, set off on a frontier chase and found my place in time and space. I see the stars now sprinkled through the fabric that they've wrinkled and cannot help but be amazed. It started with a twinkle. Bro, come on. Give me that line again. I I see the, the the with the fabric that they've wrinkled. That's what was that one? Give me that again. I see the stars now sprinkled through the fabric that they've wrinkled. The fabric that they've wrinkled. Damn boy. Yeah. 
if there's any Grammy competitions like tickets for, for poetry <laughs> slams, I'm also in it to win it too. So the topic for the day is telescopes, which are, I think we know what those are, right, Sari? Yes, they're just things you build to make things look closer than they are. Yeah, you, you, observing distant distant objects, um, and specifically by detecting electromagnetic radiation, so anywhere right. along that spectrum. And if you stick the telescope in like a vehicle or a building, that's an observatory. So you Great. can have them on the ground, you can have them in planes or balloons, or you can have just like a space telescope that's free floating around. And then there are lots of different types of telescopes that Julian kind of covered poetically, and I will cover not poetically. Uh, (laughs) The first ones were optical telescopes. So basically taking things that we can see with our eyes in the visible part of the electromagnetic spectrum and making them zoomed in, like looking Mm -hmm. at far away things closer. Uh, We made refracting telescopes out of lenses, and the first telescopes were made by people who were already working in the lens sphere on eyeglasses, and then those became spy glasses. And then we were like, what about mirrors? What if we use mirrors instead of just like glass lenses to reflect light? So we made reflecting Mm -hmm. telescopes, and then we combined mirrors and lenses. We were like, what if we mess optically with both of them and then from there we were like there are other wavelengths in the electromagnetic spectrum so what if we created devices that detect outside of this very narrow range of visible light um, and started going to like radio waves and gamma rays and uh, microwaves and all those things and so you end up with telescopes that do not look like telescopes they just look like giant satellite dishes mm-hmm. and you're like this yeah. can't be a telescope but yeah. what I'm hearing is that a gravitational wave detector, not a telescope. Yeah, those uh, the gravitational wave detectors like LIGO, right, is a laser interferometer. And so it uses like laser beams that are at 90 degrees to each other and that, you know, shoot down a really, really long tunnel and then come back. But then as the Earth kind of, uh, uh, I think the scientific term is jiggles, as mm. it gets all jiggled. Mm-hmm. We like to say wiggles, but jingles is okay. Oh, too. <laughs> well, I, see, wiggles is in two dimensions, but jiggles is in three dimensions. Oh, no. Oh, okay. So juggalos are in four dimensions. <laughs> juggles, I don't know how they work. I, <laughs> they're in another whole other yeah. plane. But yeah, they, uh, they detect how the laser interferes with itself. And so they can measure how mm-hmm. much wiggling is happening. Of space-time, which is not... So yes. like that's a wave in space-time, not in the electromagnetic field uh, or whatever, however yeah, photons work. exactly. Um, so so not so. technically a telescope. I do have several questions for Sari. I can try my best. Are binoculars a telescope? I think... Yeah. They, yes. They're just two telescopes yeah. next to each other. You're doing both eyes. If a spyglass is a telescope, binocular, just two spyglasses together. You could rip them apart if you were strong enough. My iPhone has a 3x magnification camera. Do I have a very small telescope in it? Is a camera a telescope? I think so. Yeah. I mean, like the Hubble and Webb don't right. have like a person looking through it. They are just yep. big cameras. Video I cameras. think so. And <laughs> yeah. like a lot of early telescopes. So after we went from looking with our eyes and before the time where we could beam data into screens, a lot of telescopes mm-hmm. just did photography, like sure, a giant sure, sure. camera lens. Mm-hmm. So. I, I would also say a telescope doesn't have to be a single 
uh, instrument either, right? Because now we're using multiple like dishes positioned around the world to act as one enormous telescope, mm-hmm. right? And to see resolve images like uh, in that method, but like the instruments themselves are like distantly separated. Right. So, you know, you got to expand your mind on what a telescope can be. I think that gravitational lenses are telescopes, even though we didn't build them. They're just natural mm. telescopes. Hmm. Put a pin in that thought. Yeah, we'll get to that later. That, yeah, don't bring that up. <laughs> don't bring that up yet for no reason. Not saying nothing, not for nothing, but don't think about that. <laughs> and Sari, I feel like telescope, the word, that's got to be a new one. And it's not complicated. Yeah, it's relatively new. It's the thing about these kind of words is that old scientists would write a bunch of letters to each other. And so we have a lot of physical documentation of this is probably the first time it was written. And then it was probably spoken around that time, too. Um, So the first letter where we saw the word, the Italian word telescopio. Oh, love that. Very good Italian pronunciation. I love that. Yeah, Telescopio. I don't know. Uh, went from Federico Cesi to Galileo. Um, and Cesi was the founder and first president of like an academy of sciences in, in Italy. But Cesi was familiar with the work of the Greek mathematician Giovanni Demisiani. Um, and so it's mm-hmm. possible that. Demisiani was the first to suggest the name telescopium for the instrument. And then mm. Jesse just like wrote about it and was very excited. But before we got that word, before we landed on it, Galileo had used perspicillium and Kepler no, had used perspicillium and conspicillium um, yeah. from mm, her, no which meant through no. and specchio, like spectacles, which means to mm-hmm. observe or watch or look at, um, which. I'm glad Periscope we didn't land on that. Is basically yeah, those are nasty. I don't like those at all. Perspicillium. Perspicillium. The- it sounds like a disease you get in a swimming pool. Yeah. yeah. Or a medical instrument or something. Uh-huh. It does sound like, like something pers- that you put inside of a person. Yeah. 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 Totally. Gaze into the abyss in a different way. My toe got, <laughs> got perspicillium. They had to take it right <laughs> off. Uh, I can't eat for 24 hours. I have a perspicillium appointment. <laughs> yeah but we landed on telescope which just means like tele is like far like a telephoto lens and scope Mm -hmm. which means to look or see all right let's let's move on to the part of our show where we play a game we got a quiz and i i'm gonna quiz you guys it's gonna be an episode of truth or fail so telescopes obviously fantastic tools for far seeing into the cosmos but it turns out the telescopes are also Excellent tools for studying things a little closer to the Earth. The Mm. following are three stories of earthly uses of telescopes, but only one of them is true. Which one is it? A previously known herd of llamas was discovered. (laughs) A previously unknown. Okay, there we go. Oh, those llamas? Yeah, I know them. We forgot the llamas. We rediscovered the llamas. That's where I I found those guys weeks ago. (laughs) (laughs) I lost my llamas. They were known and then unknown and then known again. No, previously unknown herd of llamas. Was discovered in the Atacama Desert in Chile because <laughs> oh, their no. movements were causing small deviations in the typical measurements taken by a telescope at the Paranal Observatory. Or it could be story number two. 
scientists adapted an algorithm normally used to calibrate the focus on telescopes into a tool that can characterize the density and thickness of clouds so that they can more accurately predict the weather. Or it also could be story number three. To uncover landmines, scientists developed a system where they used telescopes to monitor the locations of bees that were specifically trained to sniff out mines. So it could be number one, discovering a llama herd, an unknown one, with telescope <laughs> measurements. Story number two, predicting the weather with telescopes. Or story number three, tracking landmine detecting bees. Okay. The thing about the new herd of llamas is, are they like uh-huh. a known species of yeah. llama? And then it's like, there's a herd. <laughs> no, they were a known species. So like, a, yeah, they exist, not like a whole new llama. Well, who cares? <laughs> yeah, they're just some, they're just some llamas in the place where you find llamas. First of it, all, people care. <laughs> and it's nice to find a new herd of llamas. Second, <laughs> it's weird that they did it with a telescope. Well, okay, I, I, okay. if it was like Fair new enough. llamas were found like, in Hawaii, near the Manukia right. Observatory, yeah. that would be That'd like be really weird. surprising. Like, oh wow, we missed the llamas on this barren <laughs> volcanic plain. <laughs> must be very How small did you get llamas. here, llama? They're the size of grains of rice, so they're very <laughs> easy to miss. Jeez, okay, I I just don't think it would make news, you know? Yeah, no one would write a paper about that, and no one would find the paper where somebody wrote about it. I hear that, and it's too dry knows. for llamas to be just to be out in the desert in the Atacama Desert. I, mean, I bet. Quite dry up there because it's so hot, high up, yeah. right? They're yeah. like the camels of South America. The smallest organisms that are that high up, though, are just like bacteria. No, not even that. Like they can't survive, right? They found that alien there, too. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I did, I did forget about the alien. <laughs> yeah. I, did I not mention they were alien llamas? <laughs> uh, okay. The, the cloud one just seems like if, if this isn't real, then like Deboki just like invented something probably that, you know, yeah. she's, she's going to be rich sure, now. Sure, sure. <laughs> yeah, I, I feel cloud makes sense. I'm trying to figure out the logistics of the bee tracking telescope. Like, where would my telescope be? Yeah. Where would my bee be? <laughs> I just can't picture it. I just can't. I it's can't. Fig- I'm. I'm gonna pick clouds. Are they like the satellites that are like the Google Map satellites? Are those telescopes oh. that are pointed at? Yeah. Earth. Hmm. Mm-hmm. I feel like the bee one is so similar to like other explosive sniffing bee stories that it seems mm. like maybe it's an amalgam. So I'm going to go with the clouds as well. Sari? I mean, <laughs> you're going to know something was... that's going to blow the lid off of this, I bet. You huh? know, you poo pooed. <laughs> you both poo pooed on the llamas. I love mm. these known llamas, these previously <laughs> unknown, then known llamas. And so I'm going to pick that one. We have, for the first time in a while, no winners. <gasps> oh, oh no, the bees! The bees! <laughs> in 2005, scientists here in my home state of Montana published a paper describing their system that combined the incredible odor tracking abilities of bees with the fascinating world of telescopes. To train the bees, you feed them a syrup mixed with a chemical that you would like them to seek out. In this case, they used a byproduct of TNT synthesis, uh, and that caused the bees to associate that smell with food. To track the bees, the scientists used a system called LIDAR, which is sort of like radar, except it uses Uh. light instead of radio waves. And the scientists used a laser to scan the field, and as the bees flew around the area, the light from the laser would scatter and be received by a telescope. Studying that light scattering gave the scientists information about where the bees were located, which in turn allowed them to figure out where the mines in their experimental facility were. I'm not sure 
if telescopes that track mine detecting bees have yet become a widespread technology <laughs> that had been implemented in the field, but other scientists have adopted this technique to study insect populations in different areas. Damn. So it's a real wow. thing. Telescope bee tracking. Wow. And I get it. Cause like I was kind of picturing like a telescope, like zooming in and tracking an individual bee. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. But it was yeah. Sort of LIDAR with telescope tracking. Forgive the pun, but that had every science buzzword. Yeah, right? Well, zeros yeah. all around. Dang it. Wait, was so there the points any... don't matter. Hank, why did I send you my bank account information then? You know what? You're actually the second You're the second guest who's mentioned that, which is a little suspicious at this point. <laughs> <laughs> I don't do anything with it. I just like to have other people's bank accounts. It's just sort of like a collection that I have. He just thinks they're neat. <laughs> And nice to have. So there was some a little bit of nuggets here. In 2019, an earthquake in Chile did cause telescopes to shake, which in turn meant that the uh, the satellites, some of them were watching, became streaks in the images uh, instead of their usual static dots. And scientists are trying to see if they can use telescopes to study changes in the planet's crust, particularly Ooh. using a technique called very long baseline interferometry, which combines uh-huh. light gathered by multiple telescopes around the world to effectively build a larger telescope, as Julian was talking about earlier. By measuring the timestamps of observations at different telescopes in different locations, scientists can calculate distance very precisely and combine that with other techniques to better understand what's happening along Uh, the Earth's surface. What was up with the llama thing then? Oh, nothing. (laughs) Okay. <laughs> just just that we could use telescopes to like learn things that we sure. wouldn't expect to be able to learn i think sure. that's yeah. what i'm going for everything's got to be based on something what come on have a little wonder <laughs> <laughs> have a little wonder um and the hubble space telescope does have an algorithm to uh match stars and that was converted into a tool that can identify the spots on individual whale sharks so that people oh. can catalog and track whale sharks so oh. that is a real thing and we could have used really that cool. as a, a fact That's super cool. Um, It's also been used to track other sharks and fish that have spotty skin. Why spotty skin specifically? Because uh, stars are like spots. It's good at spots. I love that for Hubble. He's very good at one thing. (laughs) And that's finding spots. (laughs) That's such a so condescending. Yeah. (laughs) That's cool. All right. Next, we're going to take a short break. Then we'll be back for the fact off. SciShow Tangents is brought to you by Rocket Money. If I asked you how many subscription services you had, you think you could name them all? And before you just start naming streaming apps, remember that basically everything has a subscription these days. Video games, dating apps, food delivery apps. It's a subscription service world. We're just living in it. And with all of these subscriptions, it can feel like money is just flying out of your account. And that, frankly, sucks. But Rocket Money can help. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money can help you negotiate to lower some bills for you by up to 20%. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in total canceled subscriptions. Escape from the planet of the subscription services and stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash tangents. That's rocketmoney.com slash tangents. Rocketmoney.com slash T-A-N-G-E-N-T-S. 
SciShow Tangents is brought to you by Manukora Honey. Merriam-Webster defines honey as a sweet, viscid material elaborated out of nectar of flowers in the honey sack of various bees. And that's all good and fine, but old Miriam and Webster (laughs) used some words that I don't know and didn't really hit the mark when it comes to talking about Manukora honey. First off, Manukora isn't just sweet and viscid. It's got a rich, complex taste and a creamy melt-in-your-mouth texture that you won't find in your average everyday grocery store honey. And nectar of flowers doesn't cut it when you're talking about the nectar of the Manuka tea tree in New Zealand. The only nectar these bees feed on in the production of Manukora honey. In conclusion, Manukora ain't just your average boring dictionary-defined honey. It's special honey. I know this firsthand. Uh, They sent us a jar, a squeeze bottle, and some honey sticks, and we've been sharing them around the office of their MGO 850+, their best-selling honey. It's not the same. (laughs) It's not (laughs) what you're thinking of when you think of honey. Look, have you ever think to yourself, if like, a company made grapes for the first time, we'd go nuts. It's, I feel like honey is this way, where I'm like, if anybody like made this up, we'd be going out of our minds. But this is like if honey happened again. Did you like the honey, Sari? So I moved into a new place where there's no insulation in the walls. And so uh, I've been drinking a lot of tea. And mm-hmm. sometimes that tea needs a little bit of honey. And I initially poured in this honey thinking it was going to be grocery store honey. And then I was like, that's different. And now it's a little uh, breakfast treat. It's a great breakfast treat because it's 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 a little like it's for toast. I could put like this on my butter toast and I'm like, oh, I'm having an experience. So Merriam-Webster also defines ultimate as the best or most extreme of its kind. Now that one fits Manukora to a T. Indulge in the best or most extreme sweet viscid material elaborated out of nectar of flowers in the honey sack of various bees from Manukora. If you head to manukora.com slash tangents, you can get $25 off their starter kit, which comes with the MG850 plus Manuka honey, a free travel pack of honey sticks, a free wooden spoon, and also a free guidebook. That's manukora.com slash tangents to get $25 off your starter kit. Hello, everybody. Now, get ready for the fact Our panelists have brought science facts to present to me in an attempt to blow my mind. And after they've presented their facts, I will judge them and award Hank Bucks any way I see fit. And because we have a zero 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 tie right now, the best fact's going to win this one, you guys. But to decide who goes first, I have a trivia question. When the James Webb Space Telescope was ready for launch, there were, of course, practical considerations, like how to transport the telescope from California to its launch site in French Guinea. One important component of the plan was a container that held much of the telescope called the Space Telescope Transporter for Air, Road, and Sea, or (laughs) STARS, which was about 18 feet high and 16 feet wide. But how long was STARS? I mean, it's probably a train, right? Uh, held much of the telescope. I think the air bit's important because how big <clears throat> can true. you make a container that still fits in an airplane? I wish I knew the internal volume of a C-130 Hercules, but I just don't. 
you just said a lot of words. I'm going to guess 100 yeah. feet. I'm just trying to think what's long, but not too long. 100 feet? Is I'm going to say long? that's too long. Okay. I'm going to just, I'm going to go 99 just to do Price is Right and be oh the oh, worst wow. person that there is. Yeah, he's, he's playing to win, you guys. <laughs> Sarah, you said 100 and Julian said 99? I said 100 feet, yes. 99. It was 110 feet long. Son of a! <laughs> I don't know big planes, but I know big numbers. <laughs> I don't know if it actually ever did travel by air. I don't like. Oh, man. I just need to get that acronym. They needed to do. They needed to be stars, yeah. and they had to figure out a way to make it that. Everything does travel through the air. You know, <laughs> <That's a good laughs> yeah. That, now we're just being pedantic. There's no. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. According to Hank's research, at one point, the telescope was transported in stars via C-5 Charlie, the largest transport aircraft in the U.S. military fleet. So there you go. And also had to be moved on a cargo ship, and it traveled at 5 to 10 miles an hour to keep a smooth ride. Never went faster than that until they put it in a freaking spaceship and <laughs> launched it into space. Wow. Like, we need to have a really smooth ride, but we, we are going to put you on top of a bomb. <laughs> Very slow bomb. All right. So, Sari, that means you get to go first. So one of the big challenges of using an optical telescope here on Earth's surface to look up at space is that there's all this atmosphere in the way. Uh, and the gases in air re refract visible light in lots of different ways that we can see with our eyes. Um, that shimmer or haze when you look at hot air, the blue color of a clear sky or the oranges of a sunset or even the twinkling of stars. And we have a whole song and now an ode about that last one. There's probably songs about sunsets and blue skies, too. Uh, but, you know, uh, all of those things. You would um, don't have time do to I, check. What do I know? <laughs> um, so astronomers weren't satisfied with blurriness when studying or imaging faraway objects. And in 1953, the American astronomer Dr. Horace W. Babcock published a paper that explained a way to correct that blurriness by measuring the distortion of light around one bright star in the area of the sky that you're interested in, and then tweaking the mirrors in the telescope. Um, at this time, they were using reflecting telescopes a lot um, to correct the image, which laid the foundation of this idea called adaptive optics. Um, and you can't just pick any star if you want to do adaptive optics. They, um, they really targeted these so-called natural guide stars which have to be bright enough in the sky to have enough information to do these calculations and adjustments. Mm -hmm. So the idea could have died there. Um, but instead, we decided to make fake stars with laser beams so that we could do adaptive optics mm. on our telescopes. And one of the most prominent artificial star laser systems nowadays was fully installed in 2016 at the ESO's Paranal Observatory in Chile, um, which we, we already talked about, um, which is where they keep their very large telescope which is its official name. Um, and this four laser guide star facility contains 22 watt beams that are attuned to around 589 nanometers. So specifically those photons energize electrons in sodium atoms that are hanging around in the Earth's atmosphere at around 90 kilometers above the surface in the mesosphere. The sodium atoms that are floating around re-emit those photons, which are the artificial starlight that can be detected by the telescope and used in these sort of adaptive optics calculations. This is the exact same principle in sodium vapor streetlights, which are quite bright uh, here on 
the surface. But because they're so high up and have all this atmospheric distortion, these artificial stars are around 20 times fainter than the faintest star we can see with just our human eyes. So we can't actually look up and see artificial stars in the sky, but they are bright enough for a telescope to see and mathematically compensate for the atmosphere and get super sharp images of stars and space objects. Why are there sodium atoms in the atmosphere? That I don't know. <laughs> I, it's got to be like 0.00000001% of the atmosphere. Like sodium. It's not like, what is it? Do? Like, I guess just from the salt water? Yeah, that would make mm-hmm. sense, right? Like yeah. if it's dissociated in, in salt water. And uh, then, yeah, it just gets kicked up, right? Like how we find like microorganisms like on the outside of the ISS. Because right. like sometimes stuff just gets carried away. From what I can tell from a quick search, it is like seawater and terrestrial sodium, but also possibly from like meteors, but um, like a, a, a natural layer. They call the metallic vapor layers of our atmospheres. Uh, they- and so the laser hits them and makes them glow a little bit. And then it's a little fake star for us to look at. And we know exactly what it's like. We use it. Yeah. To adjust the telescope so we can look at real stars and make the pictures even better. That's, That's so, so cool. Yeah, I like the. I w- it would be fun to try and make a list of like the smartest ideas. Like totally like, unbiased. Top ten smartest things a people a person ever did. Yeah, according to us. Yeah, <laughs> you could have sponsored segments. Be like buying gold was the smartest. <laughs> the smartest thing. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> All right, Julian. Tall order, but it's your turn. So Hank, I don't know yes. if you've ever heard of this phenomenon. It's called gravitational lensing. <laughs> I have. I have. I'm going to tell you about. It. I'm going to tell you about it, and hopefully change your perspective on the universe a little bit in a literal sense. Okay. okay. So we're going to start with just telescopes. I feel like you know you think oh it's obvious, but like they might not be so obvious, right? But the idea is you take a bunch of light from a source, right? Because the source mm-hmm. is emitting light in all directions. And it's spreading out, you know, but only so much of it actually hits your your eye and gets focused on the back of your retina and you actually see that. So you take some of that light that's going not towards your eye and you you bend it, you change it, you bring it back towards your eye, you bounce it into your eye, and then you see more of light from that thing. So that thing's brighter or bigger, you know, easier to easier to see. So this was the idea behind the optical telescopes that Galileo came up with. Uh, The lens of his telescope was about 38 millimeters, so roughly an inch and a half. Then they started building bigger lenses, but an issue with glass lenses the light passes through is that the wavelengths of light don't bend the same amount because they they have different amounts of energy. So as you send this through a glass, you're going to get basically a spectrum effect or a prism effect. Right. So you have what's called chromatic aberration as a result, where the the colors have different focal points. So there's a limit to how big these glass lenses can get before you start distorting what it actually looks like. So Isaac Newton Mm -hmm. came up with this idea of using mirrors instead. And as they got bigger and better, they also corrected chromatic aberration with uh, new glass lenses. And so they still reach a point where with a lens or a reflector, you know, they can only get so big for a single instrument. So the very large telescope, uh, as Sari was talking about, it's made up of four smaller telescopes. The primary mirrors on those are 8.2 meters each. So 
large, you know, like 25 feet or so, but still that like we can go bigger, right? So mm-hmm. next to the very large telescope, they're building the extremely large telescope. It's planned for 2027. I guess they're not great at names, but anyway. Oh, it's, uh, I like it. I like I'm not going to forget it. Say it how it is. <laughs> say it how it is. Yeah. That mirror is going to be made up of uh, almost 800 segments. It's going to be 39.3 meters in diameter. So pretty sure bigger than that star container that James Webb was shipped in. Mm-hmm. Quite, quite large. But still, we're coming up against the limits of what you can do with a single instrument or optic. So we have to think bigger, much bigger, stellar size, bigger, very big, quite large, because (laughs) Einstein, another name that you may be familiar with, he came up with that whole general relativity idea that says that Mm -hmm. things with mass bend space and time. And so it bends the path that light travels on. Well, what does a telescope do? Bends the path of light, light. bends Bends light. light. So. People realized, Einstein realized, and he predicted that you could use the gravitational warping of space-time as a lens. And this was confirmed in 1919 uh, when scientists took expeditions to go see a a solar eclipse. Uh, They had to sail down to uh, an island off the uh, west coast of Africa. It was Arthur Eddington. And he watch this eclipse happen and notice that stars that they know the position of, you know, normally when they observe it in other parts of the year, they seem to be farther away from the sun than they typically were because the light coming from them was bent. So this confirms this idea that you can use gravity to focus light. And so Mm -hmm. we've taken that idea and we've applied it to galaxies, galaxy clusters, uh, even stars within our own galaxy And using that, we can actually focus the light from some of the earliest galaxies that existed. This is how the Hubble Space Telescope actually sees far back to the beginning of the universe. It it takes light from these very, very faint ancient galaxies and uses known gravitational lenses to bend them and bring them together. So we are planning in the future to send up the Nancy Grace Roman Space Telescope, and it's going to observe. Uh, the center of the Milky Way, looking for exoplanets using this gravitational lensing technique. And that's all very cool. But here's the mind-blowing fact that I wanted to get to eventually. And that is, there was a 2022 study that used machine learning to try and identify gravitational lens candidates. And there's not very many that we've identified before. There's about 100 that we typically go to to look at because it's kind of hard to tell when the image you're looking at is maybe separate galaxies or if it's like some weird warping effect from a gravitational lens. So they picked out 5,000 potential gravitational lenses using this algorithm. They checked how accurate the algorithm was uh, by hand, looking at 77 of these candidates, and 88% of them were gravitational lenses. And to be clear, The lenses aren't like lenses that we made that are supposed to be all perfect and resolve an image. They act more like a funhouse mirror that, you know, warp things and distort them. What this means, though, ultimately, is that there are way more gravitational lenses than we realized and have found. So when you're standing here on Earth and you're looking up at that night sky, along with the atmospheric interference and the twinkling, you've got a lot of gravitational warping affecting the very, very distant light that's coming to you. So essentially, 
you're always peering out into a funhouse, distorted, warped misrepresentation of the universe every time you gaze into the night sky. I don't mind that the universe had a beginning, but I don't like that that you could, like look back at time. That freaks me out. <laughs> that disturbs me. <laughs> that we could like see the first light. It's like the most extreme version of like the internet never forgets kind of thing. It's like you know you go yeah. far back enough, and somebody can can watch everything you did. Yeah. Then. Like there's an Never. alien looking at me, you know. Yeah. That's why I stay inside all the time. You can't see me if I'm inside, aliens. Mm. <laughs> the light's That's not getting right. out of here. We'll have pictures of all of our butts from every year we were alive. and then we'll Yeah, be I've been sending those and they <laughs> haven't responded yet. I'm kind of mad. We're <laughs> keeping them away. I was, what's it going to take, aliens? <laughs> so I'm fighting between a fact that was more new to me and a fact that is more mind-bending, literally universe-bending. I think that I will, I think that I'll give it to Julian because it is the weirder, wilder fact. I'm, I'm uh, going to, I'm going to split it with Sari because I think that Sari's fact was super cool. And, yeah. and I would like to have joint custody of these Hank bucks. Yes. Because I, that was a great one. And it comes along. With a free ticket to the Webbies. Wow, I didn't even have to dance. <laughs> All right, now it's time to ask the science couch where we got a listener question for our couch of finely honed scientific minds. Janor and Faye713 on Discord asked, what is the least optical-based telescope slash how did we start building telescopes that can receive and translate light outside of the human perception? Mm, that's interesting. So like optical meaning visible light, I guess yeah. is how how to interpret this. So uh so we we got we got we've all talked about this a little bit, but like there's a very wide spectrum of electromagnetic radiation. And you hear radiation and you think that's uh strange and it's from another that's like esoteric weird stuff. But a slice of it is visible light is is electromagnetic radiation. Mm -hmm. So is like the stuff in x-rays that you have to worry about giving you cancer. And so is like gamma rays that if they hit you, they could kill you. Um, uh, So the, uh, if there's a lot of them, there's, there's also, there's, a very s- small density that there's the right amount turn you into the Hulk. Right a- That's what I was gonna say. <laughs> <laughs> Hard to find, but it's out there. So the question for me is like, at what point did we notice that there's more of this stuff, and oh. it is the same stuff? Yeah, but there's more of it than we could see. And and Freaky. did we know? Like, when did we realize that it was all the same stuff? For me, the least optical-based telescope, all telescopes are optical, but um, I guess the least, like, furthest from the visible light spectrum, I guess, is an interesting question. Like, Webb would be on the edge one way, um, and, a, and a couple of other infrared telescopes, but I think Webb is the most, is the furthest over infrared telescope. And in the other direction, I don't know. But now I've realized that, in, in fact, it does go way beyond infrared. <laughs> it does go beyond. But that is the direction that I took it of like, okay, what is so and, and uh, I think we've been science communicating with each other for long enough that I also took it to the place of when when was the point in time where we realized that we could make telescopes that detect things mm-hmm. other than light like what we moved use. beyond spy glasses and both these answers converged into radio <laughs> telescopes which are 
way like really really long wavelengths. So the radio waves are the things that work in to like like play the radio. Those are the the wavelengths that gets transmitted across the world. And those feel like pretty non-optical to me, even though they are light, they are they are weird light and we associate it with hearing because we we have devices the radio transceivers, um, I think that's the right word, that transmit radio waves that, that change that into vibrations that are the sound that we come to our ear. And radio astronomy was kind of an accident, like a happy accident. So the first transatlantic phone call was made in around 1927 um, before we had phone cables. And so telecommunications were carried by radio waves, just like radio communications. And so Bell Laboratories, Bell Telephone Laboratories, hired a physicist to be like, our, our telephone across the Atlantic Ocean is getting kind of staticky. Uh, can you mm-hmm. figure that out? You, you know physics. Um, and this physics physicist's name was Carl Guth Jansky. Um, and so he built a like a big array of antennas uh, that is like the size of a small house. If you look up pictures of it, it's like like a, a bigger than a bus, smaller than like a, a huge house, but like chunky. Uh, <laughs> and it did a complete rotation once every 20 minutes. It was like this huge box of antennas. He put it in a potato field in an abandoned potato farm. He just like detected radio waves for a couple of years. He found some radio static coming from nearby thunderstorms um, or like distant storms, but he found this mystery static too, Um, a strange radio hiss at a wavelength of about 14.6 meters. Um, And he, he tuned into this hiss, he tracked it, and he, and this was like before microwaves or cell phones, so like there wasn't radio static from that, but he pulled out a star chart and realized that the hiss was wherever the Sagittarius constellation was oh. in the sky around the Earth. That's oh, so cool. Another candidate for for smartest thing ever. For smart. Yeah. And and the like the sad thing is he like continued to think about star noise and like presented thoughts and wrote papers, but Bell Labs was like, "Oh, we figured it like well, let's put you on telephone projects now. Like, we don't care about space. You, Oh, you found mm. space radio waves? That, whatever. We, we're doing telephones here on Earth. We're not talking to aliens. Mm-hmm. Um, and so other folks, um, like Grote Reber, I'm not pronouncing his name right, built a radio telescope in his backyard based on this research. And people started um, looking into radio astronomy after this telephone guy accidentally mm-hmm. discovered it. And that's just wild to me. Like it is like we stumbled upon um, Mm non-optical astronomy or not. Yeah. Like, like outside of the visible light range astronomy. And then we told the guy who did it to shut up. And we told him to stop. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Work on the telephones. There's no profit in that. Get back to work. Yeah. Yeah. And just this idea of like radio waves. I think we, we associate them with audio and like radio astronomy is where we get like the sounds of pulsars or the energy from a neutron star. Um, scientists don't listen to them to understand the data. Like that's not mm-hmm. the valuable information. Mm-hmm. But yeah. I think it's a it's a fun science communication tool to be able to like listen to the aurora of Jupiter 
um, yeah. and have this noise because we have the technology already to convert radio <clears throat> waves into um, something like sound that we can listen to. And so it feels far from optics in some way. Well, that's pretty cool. A lot of yeah. a lot of Bell Labs accidental discoveries, right? Because weren't like physicists working for Bell Labs, the two guys who found the cosmic microwave background radiation. Yeah, if I memory think that serves, was also then. Yeah, it I was uh, whose names I don't recall, but then they shoved him in the locker. They said, "Does this help us with phones?" <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> Get out of here, nerd! <laughs> if you want to ask the science couch your questions, you can follow us on Twitter at SciShow Tangents, where we'll tweet out topics for upcoming episodes every week, or you can join our Patreon and ask us on our Discord. Thanks to at Suzanne five eight zero three on YouTube and at Maya Biard or B Yard on Twitter. And everybody else also who asked us your questions for this episode. Julian, where can we listen to your voice or watch your content? Wow, what a great tee-up. I have a podcast with a good friend who you know. He was an early guest on SciShow Tangents, Trace Dominguez. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's called That's Absurd. Please elaborate. Available wherever fine podcasts are posted. You'll also find us. Uh, So if you like science... And then, like, tangents that shoot off of whatever the topic is that you're talking about are hey, showing it might be a good fit for you. <laughs> oh, wait, yeah. <laughs> I think we're going to have someone look into this. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Oh, I've, I've opened myself up to litigation. That's right. That's what's going to happen. If you like this show and you want to help us out, there's a couple ways you can do that. First, you can go to patreon.com slash scishowtangents to become a patron and get access to our newsletter and our bonus episodes and a special shout out to our patron, Les Aker, for their support. Second, you can leave us a review wherever you listen. That helps us know what you like about the show. And finally, if you want to show your love for SciShow Tangents, just tell, tell people, people about, about us. us. Thanks for joining us. I've been Hank Green. I've been Sari Riley. I've been Sam Schultz. I'm Julian Huguet. SciShow Tangents is created by all of us and produced by Jess Stempert. Our associate producer is Eve Schmidt. Our editor is Seth Glicksman. Our story editor is Alex Billow. Our social media organizer is Julia Buzz Bazayo. Our editorial assistant is Deboki Trucker-Vardy. Our sound design is by Joseph Dunamedish. Our executive producers are Nicole Sweet and me, Hank Green. And of course, we couldn't make any of this without our patrons on Patreon. Thank you, and remember, the mind is not a vessel to be filled, but a fire to be lighted. But one more thing. In November 2004, NASA launched the Neil Garrels Swift Observatory into low Earth orbit with three telescopes aboard. One of them is called the Burst Alert Telescope, or BAT for short, which collects data about gamma ray bursts. This mission is still going strong, and in a September 2020 paper, a team of astrophysicists introduced the Gamma Ray Urgent Archiver for Novel Opportunities, or GUANO for short, which helps recover (laughs) what they described as data dumps from that. Oh, In boy. less funny words, Guano <laughs> is a computer pro... Yeah, yeah, you get it now. That's good. In less funny words, Guano is a computer program that communicates with instruments that detect things like fast radio bursts or gravitational waves, and then it cues Bat to look for super faint gamma ray bursts in the same regions of space. So Burst Alert Telescope and Gamma Ray Urgent Archiver of Novel Opportunities, or Bat and Guano. Usually, like, that's not usually how they do it.
but I like that they did it that way that time. I'm I'm Where... working right now with some community college students on a, like a NASA thing, and like I was pitching acronyms, and they came up with like soup with two S's and lamb, and I was like, <laughs> I think you kids have got the idea. Yes, you're there. <laughs> They're gonna Nailed go there. pretty far. <laughs> <laughs>